0: I-94 on Lumpen Radio.
1: Welcome everybody once again to another edition of I-94 right here on WLPN. As always, my name is Mr. Jamie Trecker. I am joined by Mr. Jeremy Kitchen. Good morning. And Mr. Michael Sack. morning, Jamie. And today we're joined by the author Joe Mino. He's got a brand new book out called Between Everything and Nothing. It's available on CounterPoint. Joe is joining us via Zoom from the wilds of Chicago where it is pouring hard, I understand, on those northern uh, r- retreats of our fair city. Joe, how are you this morning?
2: Thanks so much, Jamie. Really appreciate
1: it. Thanks for, for having me. Joe, first, before we even get going, I know Jeremy uh, had a quick question for you because you're you're more known as a fiction writer, aren't you? Is that correct?
3: Yeah, I just want to, what made you decide to uh, do a nonfiction book? I, I know you've been writing fiction for, for a long time. In fact, I uh, I saw you read uh, with John Edgar Weidman years ago. It was like a blue-collar symposium at Harold Washington. Um, I, I work for Chicago Public Library and Um, I know I'm familiar with your work, and you've been putting out, what do you you have, six or seven novels prior to this? And I was just curious what made you decide to uh, take the foray into nonfiction.
2: I appreciate that question. Thanks, Jeremy. Um, Well, actually, yeah, like you said, I've I've written seven novels, two short story collections, a bunch of stage plays, uh, even a musical a couple years ago and all you know while working on those projects i was an editor contributing editor uh to punk planet magazine um for a number of years and that was all nonfiction writing so lots of interviews with filmmakers folks in bands also worked for this great uh skateboard magazine called Bale, which was produced here in chicago oh yeah and i remember lo- Bale. yeah yeah that yeah, was yeah a lot of fun and uh also freelanced, you know so i've written a lot for places like the reader uh, lots of stuff for um, chicago magazine and so i mean i think like most writers know in order to survive be able to pay your bills especially as a fiction writer you know you have to be adaptable and willing to write whatever you can and what i always found was that as a fiction writer you know i was interested in characters their relationships to each other and uh, just an interesting, uh, compelling, complex story. And I didn't have any specific training in journalism or nonfiction writer. I didn't go to grad school to study it. I just started learning that craft mostly through doing interviews um, for places like On Planet. Uh, And it was, I found kind of a similar pursuit where you were just trying to get someone to tell a really complicated interesting story about themselves so when um, this opportunity presented itself you know back in uh, 2017 a um, a friend of mine who's a, a filmmaker producer up in uh, Winnipeg Canada uh, called me up and said I have this this crazy story you got to come fly up and, and meet these two guys they have this this amazing story to tell um, I, I I was at first like you said I was like well I'm a novelist I've never done a, a a book-length piece of nonfiction. I don't even know if I have any interest in, in kind of devoting time to this project. Um, and so I flew up based on kind of the recommendation of this friend of mine to just do a short uh, interview, a couple hours with these two men who were um, emigres, migrants from um, Ghana in West Africa, who had spent time in the U.S. Uh, uh, in the U.S. going through the asylum process. And so I really, I just flew up there like for like one quick kind of interview with these guys. And um, it was one of the most strange kind of humbling experiences of my life. I, I sat down with these two guys and even before I hit the tape recorder and maybe, you know, you're, you're all journalists. So maybe you've had this experience where you have this kind of banter, repartee, little conversation before you hit record. Uh, well, we sat down and before I could even really get the tape recorder out. Um, one of the subjects, this guy, Razak, he just launched into this story about him and the other subject, Saydu, these two men crossing on foot, crossing into, uh, the, from the US into Canada uh, through this snowstorm uh, a day before Christmas on foot. And, and really for the next hour and a half, he just spoke. He just spoke and I didn't even, I just grabbed the tape recorder and, and turned it on and, and I just sat there and listened. And then like after an hour and a half, Seidu, this younger man, picked up the story and started talking about growing up in um, Ghana and some of the the travails and challenges that he faced as, as a young man who identified as bisexual. And then he picked up the story about crawling on his hands and knees through the snow, trying to cross the border. And then Raza picked it up. And really over five hours, I think I asked maybe like, five or six questions. These two men just spoke. And when I went back to um, start uh, transcribing this interview, I realized like, there was no way I could fit all these overlapping stories into like a 2000 word feature. And that what was really going on was these guys had it, you know, a, a, even bigger than a movie or screenplay. This this felt much more like a novel. So when I went back to sit down with them the following day and ask follow-up questions, I was Ari in the back of my mind thinking like the only way you could tell this story, which was a story of kind of four separate journeys, four separate odysseys would be through something like a, like a book. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. And so at the end of our conversation, we, we, we kind of started talking about this idea of, of, well, what if instead of trying to force all of this into a short article, this actually became a, a book
1: length project, length like book length, and and your book is um, as you've mentioned the story of two Ghanaian immigrants who, um, first of all, escape their home country in Africa for for different reasons, um, come to uh, the Americas, uh, though not necessarily the United States first, make a a, a journey through um, Latin and Central America, come to the U.S., um, have the misfortune of getting there during the Trump era, and then try to cross into Canada, Um, and of course the story that you tell, uh, I happen to remember it, it was widely reported in the international press back in in 2016 and 2017, and I I don't think I'm I'm giving anything away, both both men suffered serious injuries uh, in their quest across the border.
3: I couldn't believe, like, how many times they got robbed, like, when they were in...
1: whether well, uh, in Central America. In Central Gumbels. America. Just like, yeah. what do
3: they have left? What could they possibly steal
0: from?
1: But, that? yeah, and, you know, that, I, I think one of the things, and let, let's get to that in a second, but, I mean, one of the reasons it was held up in the international press, it got great play... Um, course, in the Canadian papers and, and in the uh, United Kingdom media, was because the men suffered serious injuries. And it was viewed as kind of a referendum on Trump's immigration policies at the time, which I think all listeners um, remember were uh, unusually restrictive. And in some cases, uh, I think even uh, a neutral observer would say needlessly cruel. Uh, right. Regardless but
2: what's, of- interesting, what's interesting is, though, so this was 2016. So it was actually before Trump took office, and this is where I got hooked, and this is where I started. You know, you get this moment as like a journalist, or even as a reader, or as a person, where someone's telling you a story, and your preconceptions about something starts to fall away. So this was actually a month, or two months, really, before um, Trump took office. And, you know, as a Chicagoan and a lifelong progressive, you know, I was such a huge supporter, such a huge fan of President Obama, uh, his creation of DACA, you know, Obamacare. But in this way, um, and this is so easily overlooked, they were actually in paid uh, detention facilities. So these um, detention facilities, which are privately run corporations under the Obama administration. And they actually fled the U.S. after both losing their asylum cases under the Obama administration. And I hate even uttering this out loud, more so than any other American president, President Obama deported um, more individuals
0: yeah, than man. any other president.
2: Yeah. And so they actually fled after the election in November uh, 2016. So it was actually before any of those really draconian immigration policies um, were put in place by Trump. It was really the fear that, you know, um, once he took office, they would be immediately deported back to Ghana and their lives would be once again placed in danger. And so that's what's really compelling, that the story that of uh, uh, these two men and the challenges that they faced through um, our unjust immigration policy. It's not the story of Donald Trump, unfortunately. It's the story of the U.S. really since 9-11 and the failure of both um, Democrats and Republicans to resolve this question of, of immigration. So as much as I would love to be like, oh, it was Trump, and his long shadow and all of these crazy, um, policies he put in place. It's actually, you know, it's a problem that had been going on and continues to go on even under, um, president Biden.
3: Well, even there was arguments when Trump was office, you know, when people are talking about people being in cages, that those cages existed before Trump. So, I mean, our, uh, I think you said draconian immigrant immigration policies have been going on for, you know, Well, since
1: 9-11, as you point out in your book, and the Department of Homeland Security, I think as you quite correctly point out in your book, which was formed after uh, 9-11 was a bureaucratic move that had the effect of changing what had been a fairly, um, I don't necessarily want to say liberal immigration policy, but it changed the tenor of how Americans looked at, at migrants coming into the nation. You know, previously, we had looked at ourselves as a melting pot nation and a, and a migrant nation. Suddenly, after the attack on the World Trade Centers, we looked at uh, refugees and migrants with suspicion. And bureaucratically, again, as you, you point out in your book, Joe, um, the way we organized facilities to handle and process them, instead of processing them as fellow uh, world citizens who might want to move to America, we looked at them as a possible threat and criminalized behavior that really had not been there. Um, In the interest of fairness, I should point out that we were not the first country to do that. You know, I I grew up in the United Kingdom, which has had a very difficult relationship with with migrants. Uh, Europe has had an extremely difficult uh, relationship since uh, the 1980s. Yeah,
3: whenever anything you read about, it's just... Yeah, I mean, so,
1: you know, I, I don't want to give our listeners the impression that, you know, this is a uniquely American problem. It isn't, and I think you do... Uh, Make that subtle point in your book about the Central American governments, which have uh, basically made this a cash industry. It's
0: it's an international uh, um, uh, gamble. It's It's almost a conglomerate, you know, this network of people. This was
2: what was so um, frustrating and kind of shocking as I started doing the research. And and that question, here's what's different, though, about the United Kingdom or, say, France or certainly Canada. This question of who gets to decide who's an American, that's actually probably the oldest question in this country from the beginning, you know, the difference between people who were landowners and people who were enslaved or indentured servants, people who were uh, indigenous and people uh, who came as colonizers, right? My family came from Italy from Bosnia and from Poland. And each of those successive ways of immigration in the early part of the 20th century, each of those successive ways were met, not with open arms, right? Uh, but with stern resistance. And there was the laws, you know, starting in the with uh, like the Chinese Exclusion Act in the 1880s which prevented people from immigrating from China. There were laws in the 1920s to prevent folks uh, like my uh, great grandparents who came from southern Italy from coming and it went on and on and on really until the um, Immigration Act of 1965, which abolished these uh, kind of quotas for these different uh, quote unquote racial groups and that question you know to me it was a question that was settled growing up as a kid on the south side of chicago where you know i was italian and Bosnian, and polish and this kid over here was filipino and this kid was irish and it was a question that i thought had been settled really until the you know resurgence of this question that came up in um, trump's campaign and starting in 2015 of who gets to be an american and what are the rights and privileges of of being an american um And and their, uh, Seidou and Razak, their journey, their story happened to just coincide with this larger question that was unfolding. I think it's a really fascinating footnote. And it's, again, one of those kind of snags in our conversation that five days before September 11th, back in 2001, under um, uh, George W. Bush, George Bush was... uh, Actually, you know, he had positioned himself as a conservative. Uh, he called himself a caring conservative, right? And he had done this huge immigration push, and there was a law that had been um, kind of put together between him and the and the Senate and the Democrats, Vicente Fox, the president of Mexico, to completely reform and to give up to like 6 million um, undocumented migrants living in the US um, a path to citizenship. So this was under a Republican president just five days before September 11th. And then September 11th occurred and it just completely upended everything. So there was this moment where it seemed like we were relatively on the same page about immigration. And then once, as you said, once September 11th happened, the way we thought about people coming from other countries and their intentions and motivations, it just completely shifted in some ways we're still very much in that mode of um, suspicion.
1: We're speaking with the author, uh, Joe Mino. He's the got a new book out called Between Everything and Nothing, and we want to take a moment actually to hear uh, some words from Joe's new book. As always, we want to thank our reader, Shanna Van Volt, and we want to thank Jamie Branch from the International Anthem Recording Company. I'd be remiss not to note that Ms. Branch can be heard in concert on July 3rd at Constellation. She has graciously provided the backing tracks for this reading. We'll be right back in conversation with Joe Mino right after this. <laughs>
4: After more than two hours of wandering in the snow, the men were still lost, still some unknowable distance from the border. Razak glanced back and saw Saidu holding his bare hands over his exposed ears, forcing himself to carry on. The temperature continued to drop to minus two degrees Fahrenheit with a wind speed of 25 miles per hour. As the two men marched ahead, they began to feel the punishing effects of negative wind chill, the dire consequences of airspeed and frigid temperatures upon the surface of the human skin. Blood in the skin radiates a thin layer of warmth along the surface of the body so that someone facing 75 degrees Fahrenheit without wind can actually have skin temperature higher than the surrounding air. But if wind carries the heat away, a person experiences heat loss more quickly than their body can produce it. The colder the temperature and more forceful the wind, the greater the heat loss from the surface of the skin. The human brain and its nerve endings quickly perceive this loss, closing down blood cells in the extremities and skin, signaling for more blood to flow to internal organs in order to stay alive. This shutting down of cells in the extremities often leads to the ghastly phenomenon of frostbite, the condition in which skin and the tissue below the skin actually freeze. At a wind chill of minus 27 degrees Fahrenheit, these body parts, hands, toes, ears, will freeze in approximately half an hour. The skin itself will not start to freeze until it is below 32 Fahrenheit, as most skin cells contain a number of compounds, including salt, that help lower their freezing point. With the persistence of wind and surrounding sub-zero temperatures, any exposed skin and the tissue beneath it can begin to freeze within 30 minutes, with permanent damage occurring within 90 minutes. Neither Razak nor Saidu had ever heard of frostbite. They had no idea of the mortal danger they were now facing. After more than two hours out in the cold, they had entered a liminal zone, had just passed the point at which their bodies might never recover. Burying his gloved hand in the armpits of his jacket, Razek marched on, feeling a sharp pain in his toes and ankles with every step. It felt as if the skin, the tissue itself, was burning with a dolorous sensation. His body, after moving more than two hours in the frigid air, had begun the initial stages of hypothermia, his core temperature dropping far below the normal levels, his physical coordination and mental functions becoming weaker and weaker, yet he did not know it. At some point, Razak heard a sound far behind him. It was Saidu's voice echoing from somewhere in the distance. By then, the younger man had fallen dozens of yards behind. Razak looked back into the darkness, wind whipping at his unprotected face. He adjusted his hood and then squinted. Saidu had stopped moving and was bending over, holding his bare hands over his eyes. Razak slowly trekked backwards through his own boot prints and then began to help wipe the snow from Saidu's face. It was unlike anything Razak had ever seen, an image from a horror movie, some terrible dream. Saidu's eyes had become completely frozen, his face crusted over with snow. Without his baseball cap, without a hood, there was nothing to keep the snow and ice from covering Saidu's eyelids. Now that his gloves were also gone, there was ice and snow frozen between Saidu's fingers and he could no longer bend them. Razak murmured to him, huddling close. The border has to be up ahead. If you can't see, call out to me, okay? Just follow my voice. This is how we're going to make it. We can do this together. Saidu nodded and Razek started off, leading the way once more. Moments later, a faint light appeared somewhere up ahead, and vanished just as quickly. Did you see it? Did you? Rozik called out. The light flashed again. Do you see it? Rozik shouted. Saidu was unable to respond. He dug at his eyes, clawing the snow from where it had settled, freezing his eyelids shut. His hands were curled into cruel talons, ice and snow creeping between the fingers to bind them together. The younger man looked up again. A point in the distance began to tremble. He began to move faster now, calling ahead to Razak. I see it! I see it! The wind began to intensify, pushing hard against their bodies. Each step sank them deeper into the snow. Every time they set a boot or shoe down, their foot would become buried, and they would have to use their bare fingers to dig their feet out. One by one, step by step, they dragged themselves through the snow, their hands and feet burning from the cold. As they climbed along toward the distant flash of light, a particularly volatile rush of snow and wind blew Rosick's glove from his hands, the two objects being lifted high into the sky before vanishing into the dark. Somewhere up ahead, the darkness broke again. A color, the faint flash of light, then it was gone.
1: We're back with I-94, and we're in conversation with the author, Joe Mino. He's got a new book out called Between Everything and Nothing. It is a nonfiction account of two Ghanaian immigrants trying to seek asylum in the Americas, ultimately in Canada. Uh, Joe, before the break, we were kind of talking about how the American perception of migration shifted after 9-11. One of the things that I think all three of us here found fascinating uh, was your description and telling of the passage that... Uh, your characters, had to make through Central and Latin America as, as basically kind of a cash cow for uh, many of the citizens living down there who repeatedly robbed them, collected bribes, extracted money from them, uh, almost to the point where you get the idea that this migratory route into the American border is a cash cow for many of these small, poor countries. Could you discuss that a little bit? Yeah, I mean, it was something I knew almost next to nothing about, and as
2: Seydou and Razak described, now both of them, just to uh, quickly clarify, Razak uh, was in his early 30s, he was a small business owner, entrepreneur, and uh, because of an inheritance over land, he ran afoul of this member of parliament um, back in Canada, and uh, I'm sorry, back in Ghana, and um, he, this this member of parliament hired these men to um, threaten him, to beat him up. And so his family helped him escape. The only place he could get a visa for was um, Brazil. So he flew into Brazil and then met uh, these migrants who traveled up from um, South America through Central America up to uh, the United States where he pled his case for asylum. Seydoux was a soccer player back in Ghana and he had grown up knowing or kind of identifying as bisexual. He had the chance to uh, try out for a Brazilian soccer team and while he was there, he was caught by his team manager uh, with another man and his team manager threatened to kind of ruin his life back in Ghana. And so he was, you know, this this young uh, 22-year-old man, he, he kind of panicked, grabbed some clothes, grabbed his passports and money and just fled. And like Razak, he met um, these migrants who were traveling north and again on foot and sometimes by bus uh, through the jungle. He traveled north again from Brazil through Central America Mexico, and then made his case uh, in the United States in um, California. And uh, I think what was so fascinating was I had no idea that there was this industry. And when I say industry, I I mean as like a genuine industry with um, uh, deep connections to uh, local governments, law enforcement, and then um, individuals, entire families make their living by shepherding um, uh, undocumented migrants uh, through the jungle in these various um, Central American uh, uh, um, communities. And they, both men had their cell phones with them for most of the journey until at various points they were robbed. And so both Sadu and Raza, they had video of these, um, what they called coyotes or human smugglers, these men and women who would pick them up on the side of the road, bring them back to their houses where they'd have maybe 10 or so different mattresses in a room where men would be sleeping and then um, everyone would be waiting to be taken through the jungle at night. Oftentimes these human smugglers would work um, with these, these robbers or thieves. So they would walk these men out into the jungle, radio where they were, and then someone would come and, and rob them of their belongings. And this was after paying a couple hundred dollars um, to be guided through the jungle. And it, the police in these various um, communities in these various countries um, seem to be well aware of um, this industry. And oftentimes, um, you know, they make money through bribes. They also, uh, you know, shake down these different migrants for, for money um, themselves. And based on individual countries, they might have a more liberal policy where they're basically just waving uh, migrants through or in a place like Costa Rica, they might actually have a um, strong support network where um, these men are taken in, they're ID'd, they're given um, food, a place uh, to kind of sleep before they're kind of shuttled along the path. But I had no idea um, how consistent and how reliable the passage was um, that these uh, men and women, and sometimes children, take Uh, as they're making their way through Central America into Mexico. Once um, these migrants are in Mexico, um, the uh, immigration police in Mexico, which is financially supported by huge donations from the United States, they have an incredibly strict policy. And so um, many of these undocumented migrants are um, placed in detention um, while they're ID'd and um, while their uh, visas and kind of um, background information is ascertained. So both Seju and Razak spent about three months in a Mexican uh, detention facility before they were given the ability to move on to make their plea um, to a, a US uh, facility um, for asylum. Um, but it is almost like a, like a super highway starting in, uh, you know, starting as far south as Brazil. And then it, it becomes kind of clearer and clearer the, the farther north um, the path leads where uh, moving from um, say like Honduras into, uh, into um, Mexico, you can see just hundreds and hundreds or, or large groups of people gathering as they make their way north into, into Mexico. Um, yeah, it was completely shocking, completely surprising. And there's video on YouTube of large caravans, groups of people. You can just follow the path town by town, um, almost like a how-to. And that's what uh, both Sadu and Razak and the people they were traveling with, they had these kind of video, um, almost like uh, mile markers, as they went along. They knew exactly where, where they were headed.
0: One of the things I really liked about the book, and, and the the title sort of alludes to it, is the um, the implications through the stories of the links or gaps between policy whether it be us policy or or international policy and what happens on the ground um, and uh, that the influence moves both ways in the book from policy to people people toward policy but one of the things that recurs throughout the book is this feeling of helplessness by the public you know like I'm just doing my job was a thing you heard a lot from um, corrections officers or, or staff officers, I guess you'd call them at the detention centers. Or you could say that about these people in, in Central America. How else are they going to make money? Yes, we may be extorting these people, but that's just the way it is. And, you know, that we've been forced to make our living this way. But in the U.S., these private companies, I didn't know about this at all. You, you mentioned a couple of companies core civic geO I think they made hundreds of millions of dollars off their uh, detention facilities and um, that they don't seem to have that excuse of of having no other way. Did you ever try to reach out to interview those companies?
2: I did so Core Civic um, is the largest of these uh, companies that um, I think previous to 9 eleven. Had a number of for profit detention facilities. And then after 9 11, um, there was this uh, need to build more and more facilities because as um, asylum seekers and undocumented migrants began moving in, uh, through the US, instead of granting, instead of doing it with the kind of efficiency um, before 9 11, uh, because of the scrutiny that the uh, undocumented um, migrants were facing under the new uh, Department of Homeland Security, they needed these facilities. And so there's a town in California, adelanto for instance, that used to have this small um, detention facility, and then it was expanded to include detention for migrants. And this happened all really throughout the Southwest. In Arizona, a number of these um, facilities sprung up. And really, just in the last couple of years, we're talking about billions, with a B, billions of dollars that these companies have made. And that's really, uh, if, if there's a, a villain in in this story, it's these for-profit detention facilities. And to go back to this question that Jamie brought up earlier, and I think it's a really, really crucial one, certainly by no means, the United States is not the only country who's struggling with this. And you know, we, we've seen over the last 10 years, 15 years, um, the rate of refugees increasing around the world. And not just in our, uh, you know, Western Hemisphere, Uh, you know, you see throughout the Mediterranean, as far north as Sweden, um, and there's no end in sight. And in fact, you know, based on um, environmental concerns, there's this great fear that um, there's gonna be this increased environmental displacement, environmental refugees because of global warming, lack of water, lack of food supplies. And so this is a huge problem of human movement. And how do we resolve this? You know, how do we resolve this question of human? We're not the only country that's going to have to continue to face this. But in France and in the United Kingdom and certainly in in, um, Canada, they have a couple policies which feel much more uh, democratic with a lower D. They feel much more humanistic. Uh, and, and the three biggest differences is, is that you know when an asylum seeker seeks asylum in, in France or, or the UK or in Canada, they're immediately placed in a um, housing facility that's not a detention, right? So there's some degree of freedom of movement. Um, they are, and those facilities are not for prompt they're, they're they're actual. Not profit facilities, right? They're not generating profit for a private company. They're also immediately given a work permit, which is is a really fascinating concept, right? Because we live in free market; it's a capitalist society. You would imagine you want these people to in- integrate, yeah, it's common sense, oh. yeah, begin earning capital, pay, you know, start paying for their own groceries and taxes, food. all that. Yeah. <laughs> exactly, make some money here, get some taxes. Um, And and that's not the case in the US. While in these other countries, they are immediately, these migrants are given a work permit. So they get housing, they get a work permit. And the third biggest factor is they are uh, immediately assigned uh, legal representation. And as we see in the case of both Razak and say, do you know both these men and most 90 percent of the undocumented uh, migrants who cross into the US and apply for asylum? They don't have the resources to, uh, you know, to um, cover legal fees, and so they're forced to advocate on their own, oftentimes in a, in a language that's not their own. And, um, yeah, the, the, the world of, um, of jurisprudence for, for immigration is complicated. Um, and oftentimes what happens is these migrants are either uh, unable to advocate successfully, sometimes under the pressure, you know, this is life or death situation, sometimes uh, some of these migrants confabulate, which is a, a fancy word of saying they might tell part of their story or highlight another, purposely might even misrepresent some of the things that happened to them. In the case of Saydu, so he grew well, I mean, up in- let's,
1: let's take a break here. Let's pick this up right <laughs> afterwards because we do need to take a break for station identification. I, I, oh. This is an interesting thing because you do make the point that, you know, many of the people that come into our immigration system don't understand it. And there are reasons why they don't understand it. So let's pick this up after the break. I want to remind everybody that we are speaking with the author, Joe Mino. He has a new book out called Between Everything and Nothing. And you are listening to I-94 right here on Lumpin' Radio. After the break, we're going to hear another segment from Joe's book. And then we're going to come back and continue our discussion. Thanks so much for spending time with us right here on WLPN.
4: This summer on I-94, Joe Mino. Makita Brotman, Nancy Decampel, J.P. Olson and Luke Walden, Tom Lynn, Atticus Lish, Paget Powell, Peter Cameron, Margo Mifflin, Chris Ware, and many, many more. Only on Lumpen's Books and Literature Show, I-94, every Thursday and Sunday at 11 a.m. And now, back to I-94 on Lumpin' Radio. In Eloy, Razek ghosted through the monotony of daily life at the detention facility. Wake up at 6 a.m., first meal, then the aimlessness of American television on three different screens, one in Spanish, one playing sports, one playing the news. Rozick preferred the one with the news. Other detainees frequently argued about what to watch. After that, there was time in the common yard, lunch, dinner, then lights out. It was unlike the detention facility in Tapachula, where you could wear your own clothes, go to the commissary, start your own business, move around with an illusion of freedom. Every two hours, you were locked down for count. Detainees had to wait in their cells for the next shift of correctional officers to arrive. In Eloy, you had very little freedom of choice, from what you did to what you ate. Whoever, whatever you had been before entering the facility, had been thoroughly and systematically removed, or at the very least put on hold for an indefinite amount of time. In Eloy, Razak had no way to call anyone, Cynthia, his mother, his uncle. In order to make a phone call, he needed a calling card, but he had no money in his commissary account, which had to be contributed to by family members and friends from the outside world. Razak had been told by other Ghanians that he had met, Munal and Bazet, companions in the asylum, that the $6 phone card available at the commissary took more than three minutes to process calls to Ghana, leaving only two minutes to speak, so that the cards themselves were basically useless. The commissary sold junk food, chips, candy, an exorbitant markup, profiting off detainees who, under UN conventions, had done nothing illegal, nothing criminal, other than presenting themselves for asylum at the border without documents. In Eloy, Razek began to fill out his asylum application, USCIS Form I-589, without legal help, asking the other migrants advice when he could. Eloy did not allow you to sell cigarettes or calling cards to make money. No money ever changed hands between detainees. All financial transactions were handled by the commissary and benefited the private institution, not the individuals held there. Eloy Correctional Officers could greet you kindly or act as if you were subhuman, depending on the day, the weather, their mood. All of them had been trained to work with criminals, none of them had been trained to work with migrants, and so the asylum seekers were not treated any differently than the murderers, the drug dealers, the felons who were also housed there. Once during Count, when the detainees were forced to wait in their cells to be visually inspected by one of the correctional officers, Razak knelt down to pray. An officer peered through the glass of the cell door and told him to stand. In the midst of his prayers, Razak did not immediately respond. The officer barked at him, warning that he was going to write Razak up for an infraction. Razak apologized, asking him why it was necessary for him to stand for Count, why it was necessary for the guard to see his face, but the guard only glowered at him and moved on. At Eloy, the recreational yard was an unending wave of desert heat. It was seldom used for any kind of recreation other than staring out at the mirages that sometimes appeared. At Eloy, there were several detainees who seemed to suffer from severe mental illness. One day, Razak and some of the other migrants were gathered in the common room watching TV when one of the detainees, a Rwandan, began shouting and threw a bottle of water at the television. The Rwandan balled his fists and then started punching the TV, breaking the screen. Correctional officers panicked and called for a lockdown, handcuffing the man and dragging him away. At any moment, it felt as if something could go wrong, as if anyone might break. At Eloy, you could not sleep through the night. Every few hours, a corrections officer would knock on the cell door to make sure you were alive, still breathing, still moving. At Eloy, men wore different colored jumpsuits, khaki for new detainees, green for migrants who had been previously processed, red for those convicted of a crime. Almost all of the men Razek knew wore khaki. According to ICE's own data, 51% of incarcerated immigrants were non-criminal and posed no threat, while 23% had non-violent convictions. Only 15% were categorized as high-level threats, numbers that clearly disputed the argument that migrants were somehow more dangerous than the general American population. It was not the other men that were frightening, but the institution itself, the way time refused to pass. The corners where the walls met always seemed to be closing in.
1: Hi, everybody. We're back right now on I-94 Live on WLPN. My name is Mr. Jamie Tracker. As always, I'm joined by Mr. Jeremy Kitchen. Howdy. And Mr. Michael Sack. Hi. And we've been speaking with the author, Joe Mino. In fact, you just heard an excerpt from his newest book, Between Everything and Nothing. It's out now on CounterPoint Press. Thanks to our reader, Shannon Volt, and to music from Jamie Branch. Right before the break, Joe, we were having a pretty interesting discussion about when people enter our immigration system. Uh, there are certain hurdles. And a main one, obviously, is linguistic, but uh, in our system, as uh, opposed to some others in Western democracies, uh, ours is very opaque. You you need to make um, very explicit uh, moves in, in court uh, that may not be widely understood. You need to file certain paperwork. And as you make the point in your book, and I think you were going to tell us uh, just before we had to go to break, you know, the guys that come in, not only are they facing a linguistic barrier, they don't have legal expertise or legal representation, but they may even getting bad information from their fellow uh, refugees who don't understand why they are in a place where they're being treated like criminals. And this is something that comes uh, through in your book very well. You know, when Razak is in Eloy, um, he, he's handcuffed, he's put in a jumpsuit. He, that waist yeah, chain. He's, yeah, he's, 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 he's treated as if he's a mass murderer as yeah. opposed to, you know, this poor guy from, from Ghana who seems about as harmless as a three-day-old loaf of bread. Who's just been robbed. He's who's been <laughs> robbed, robbed like 25 everything. times, and, and he's right. he's arrested it and trussed up like he's, you know, uh, going to walk the Green Mile. So tell us a little bit more about this because it seemed almost, and I hate to say this because it's such a cliche, Kafka-esque. It's, it's, it's
2: really stunning. You know, and both Sadie and Rosalind grew up in, in um, this incredibly difficult uh, impoverished neighborhood in in, in Ghana uh in, in Accra and they grew up with this vision of America sometimes they'd see it on music videos or in, in in films they grew up with this notion of America as this place of incredible freedom generosity power wealth and even as they um, traveled through Central America and both of them were detained in Mexico um, the detention facilities in Mexico are much more open. Um, they're not forced into manacles or handcuffs. They can wear their own clothing, uh, and so when they both applied for asylum, they were immediately put in, in in restraints, and they were shocked because they hadn't been treated like that in Mexico. And it went completely counter to what. Both men expected, you know, their their ideas or impressions of what the United States were about. And his only Razak, his kind of only context was seeing some movie with like Denzel Washington, where he was, you know, um, put in an orange jumpsuit and you know he was he was being tried as a as a criminal. Um, and so it it completely shook his his faith in the system. There's a, a scene in the book where he has to go. He has a toothache and he has to get a tooth pulled, then he has to go to a, a dentist to have this tooth pulled. And it is it is one of the most dehumanizing um, situations that he, he had to face to, to go to the dentist and they wouldn't unlock um, his handcuffs and the dentist is asking them to unlock his handcuffs. And then he has to use the washroom and these um, uh, uh, correctional officers won't unlock his handcuffs so he can unzip his his jumpsuit. and. And you just get this incredible sense of frustration, and you realize what happened is that this man escaped one um, system that was inherently unjust back in Ghana, and he has fallen into this whole other unjust system. And the incredible sense of um, hopelessness and frustration that he feels is shared by the majority of these other Asylum seekers, um, as well. And really, all this man wants is his day in court, this opportunity to kind of tell his story. And as you mentioned, Jamie, one of the biggest difficulties, and I don't think it's accidental, um, is that, uh, you know, unlike in France or the UK or in Canada, these asylum seekers are forced to advocate largely, 90% of them forced to advocate for themselves in court. And we know there's you know, all kinds of research and statistics on the fact that if a asylum is, is asked to advocate uh, on their own, they're like 95% likely to lose their case. Um, and that those who apply for asylum who have legal representation are, are much more likely um, to be granted asylum. And, and I think it's you know, it's kind of purposeful this our our unwillingness to assign legal representation, right? It almost becomes this revolving door um, for these asylum seekers. And in the case of Seidu, this young man who grew up bisexual in this very repressive um, culture where, you know, if you're accused of homosexuality, it's like a minimum of three years in prison, but it also means being kind of outcast by your family and community, beaten, by the police. He kept that secret really his whole life until he was found out. And so when he went to apply for asylum in the U.S. and had his day in court, he was not ready. He just, he couldn't imagine saying to a judge in court that he was bisexual. You know, it was so antithetical. It was so against how he was raised to be able to stand up and and come out. He had never come out to his family, his friends, let alone, you know, in a you know kind of public trial like this and so when he had his chance to tell his story he kind of gave this um you know fictional version of of what happened um and this was kind of supported by other uh asylum seekers who he was um, detained with giving him some you know some kind of not very useful legal advice and so he ended up losing his case um and really was not able to publicly utter that he was he was bisexual until he applied for asylum um, up in Canada. You know, so his story is much more about his willingness to accept who he was and to kind of vocalize that in public in order to basically save his own life um, when he eventually applied for asylum up north.
0: Joe, we only have a little bit of time left, th- but there's something I really want to try to understand. And it's the reason I asked about those companies. So these guys come into the US, they're put in uh, shackles, uh, wrists, waist ankles so they're made to be seen by the public as violent they start to see themselves as possibly that way they don't understand they're put into these detention facilities they have no way to to make money in an underground economy and add to their own commissary they have no way to get internet access information talk to people build their case It all of these things seem designed to keep them there longer and extract more money out of the facility in an the men what i don't understand is how that money is extracted and and who these people are you know when i try to think about who's behind the, these companies like core civic and whatever the other one is i, I you know i think of a, a, vil, a cliche villain like gary Ullman from the fifth element or something Mr. Burns you know something. <laughs> yeah you know but no these i'm sure these are real people who have like are are good people to the people in their lives but w- who are they, and and how are they making this money? Are they are they subsidized by the federal government based on the length of stay of that's, these? Inmates? So that's
2: how they're, they they make their money two ways. One is they have huge. I mean, I mean, the U.S. government. So you and I and Jamie and Jeremy are paying these companies, right? So these yeah. these are tax funded facilities, right? We're paying them to house these asylum seekers, and their costs are incredibly low. Razak got a job, uh, this was in Eloy, where he was paid a dollar a day um, for eight hours of work. right? And so they keep their costs really low. And then also, while he was there, he worked in his cafeteria, right? And he was was told, he was reprimanded, he was serving too much food to these fellow uh, detainees. And they told him to stop serving much food. And at the end of the day, they would just dump, all this food and he was furious he's like we have all these leftovers like why are we dumping this food and the answer is because that's 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 tax paid payer money as well right and so they just dump that food they charge um the u.s government for those supplies and they just continue to generate profit so these are privately held companies so whoever's on their their boards, uh, whoever, you know, has stock in these companies, they are doing incredibly well. And just again, to clarify, these are companies that have been around for some of um, 15, 20 years. And this is not something that just happened, you know, under the, the four years of the Trump administration. These are companies that existed during Obama, during Trump, and then they continue, these companies continue to exist under um, President Biden's Administration, and if there's anything that, like, as a group of um, frustrated, angry taxpayers, if there's anything that I, you know, wish we could immediately through some executive order or law make a, a change to, it would be through, uh, it would be to these. Um, for-profit detention facility.
1: Yeah, and of course, they exist in our prisons as well. I think uh, one of your former Punk Planet comrades, uh, Ann Elizabeth Moore and and Mayred Case, have both done work with for-profit prisons and and for-profit detention centers. Uh, Joe, we are running out of time. And and real quickly, I just want to remind everybody that we've been speaking with Joe Mino. He's got a new book out called Between Everything and Nothing. It is out on CounterPoint. You can get more information on Joe. He's got a website, amazingly. It's J-O-E-M-E-N-O dot com. He's here. In Chicago as well. Joe, real quickly, what do you got coming up next? I I always hate to put authors on the spot, but I also like to give you a little time to toot your own horn.
2: Thanks so much. I appreciate it, Jimmy. Uh, yeah, so I'm really happy to celebrate the, this is a paperback release of, of this book. So the hard uh, copy came out just about a year ago. Um, and just to be able to continue to share Sadu and Razak's story. You know, I think uh, like a lot of progressives I was excited to see President Biden win the election. I was really excited by some of his executive orders, some of his appointments. And in, in, in the case of immigration, I, um, I have yet to, to feel that same excitement. Uh, you know, the way he's handled the, the number of allowable refugees is definitely something that's uh, somewhat contentious. And these moves towards uh, for-profit Prisons and detention facilities, and also for um, immigration law. It's something I continue to be hopeful, and hopefully we'll see some some movement on on my end. Uh, just finished a new novel, finished a draft of it, and uh, yeah, hopefully something that I'll be able to um, you know complete and share in the next year or two. Um, as soon as I uh, get another draft of, of that done. It's set here in Chicago. It's about a family on the on the south side of Chicago, and it's set during the financial crisis back in um, 2008, 2009. Oh, looking
0: cool. forward to it. Yeah, look, yeah looking yeah. forward to that. Keep Hit us informed. Us yeah.
1: So we've been speaking with Joe Mino. Uh, he is, of course, a local Chicagoan. Joe, thanks for spending time with us today. We really do appreciate it. Thank you, Joe. On the show next week, another Chicagoan. Julie DeCaro with her new book, Sideline, will be out. Uh, and we're going to give Joe the last word, as we always do. We're going to close with another reading from his book. Joe, once again, thanks so much for making Thank time you, to Joe. speak to us today. We really do appreciate it.
2: Thanks, Jamie and Mike, Jeremy. Really appreciate the converse, conversation. Thanks so much.
0: Yeah, take care, man. Thank take you, care, everybody.
4: Alone in his apartment, he sometimes missed the noise of his family's house back in Nima. He missed his sister and most of all his mother. The conversations, the arguments, the tuozafi, a dish made of corn flour and gravy that she used to cook, the spices she used, No one, even the other refugees from Ghana living in Winnipeg could cook like that. Every day they spoke on Facebook, but not being able to see the shape of her face as she laughed in person, it was not the same. He missed Montreal Football Club, the other players, the familiarity of the pitch where he learned to play. He missed the Eid Festival in Nima, the concerts that took place on the street, his neighbors, friends, the conviviality. As long as his family was in Ghana, it would always be home. At the same time, he recognized that something in him had changed. His uncle, his nieces, the people he loved had been threatened because of their relationship to him. He was afraid nothing in Ghana would ever change. He prayed day after day that he could bring his family here. As soon as he got his permanent residence, he would do everything he could to help them. It was impossible to move on with them being menaced back home. Just the other day, his mother mentioned a distant family member that had threatened her for continuing to support her son's sexual identity. Be calm, he told her. Time will tell. We will be here soon. He felt comfortable being himself among the Ghanaian community in Winnipeg. There were other gay men and bisexuals and lesbians and trans individuals from Ghana who lived in Winnipeg without fearing for their lives. In July, there was the Pride Parade, which he happily attended. Everything here is beautiful, he later remarked after a newspaper reporter asked his opinion about the parade. In those moments, the city felt like his own. The Ghanaian community, his friends from his soccer team, slowly made the city feel more familiar. He had no interest in returning to Accra, but dreamed of Ghana changing its repressive laws, knowing the challenge was great. In August 2017, Saidu and a number of the other LGBT members of the Ghanaian community held a protest at Winnipeg's Folklorama Festival gathering more than 1,000 signatures from attendees and calling on the Canadian government to use its diplomatic powers to promote human rights in Ghana, as Canada continued to donate millions of dollars in official development assistance to his home country. Ghana media picked up the footage of the protest. Several Ghanaian MPs, including Reverend John Nithiam Forger, lashed out at the refugees, stating that Ghana should never decriminalize homosexuality because the laws safeguarded the nation's values. During that same time, members of the Canadian House of Commons, who served on the Canada-Africa Parliamentary Association, were visiting Accra, promoting cooperation between the two nations. One of these members, Rob Oliphant, a Liberal MP, an out gay man and former United Church Minister, had a series of meetings with a number of Ghanaian parliamentary and civil groups to discuss human rights concerns, including LGBT issues. When Oliphant returned from Ghana, he was interviewed by the press and exclaimed that he was interested in meeting with the protesting refugees from Winnipeg. Oliphant came to Winnipeg on September 28, 2017, and met with several refugee claimants, including Saidu, who spoke at length about his experiences. In the spring of 2018, Saidu began going to school to earn his high school equivalency. Once he received his high school certificate, he would begin looking for a full-time job. He had not dated anyone, had not been in a relationship since he left Ghana in 2014, and although there was a man in his neighborhood and also a woman he met downtown whom he spoke with a few times, he did not want to rush anything. There would be a time for that after everything was settled. Almost two years after his arrival, Saidu was invited to testify before the Standing Committee on Citizenship and Immigration at the House of Commons in Ottawa on Tuesday, July 24, 2018. Members had been debating suspending the safe third country agreement between Canada and the United States in order to send a strong message that Canada was concerned about the rights of refugees around the world in the face of President Trump's decision to limit such protections. Saidu stood before the formidable audience and felt nervous. But once he began to speak, everything fell away. As a newcomer to Canada, I would like to begin by recognizing that here in Ottawa, I am on the traditional territory of the Algonquin and Anishinabe people. Saidu then recounted his story. After he finished, the entire chamber was silent. His appearance at Parliament was covered by the media, once again affirming his belief that he had something to contribute and an obligation to speak out and not remain silent any longer. Even the negative comments he observed online claiming he was a criminal, a drain on national resources, other words and phrases much harsher than that, would not dissuade him. Over the last few months, the last few years, it had become clear that this was who he was and what he needed to do. For now, he would continue telling his story and see what the future would bring. is Lumpin' Radio's Books and Literature program, airing every Sunday and Thursday at 11 a.m. Central. This episode featured Joe Mino, author of Between Everything and Nothing, Out Now from Counterpoint. This episode originally aired on July 1, 2021. I-94 is a Lumpin' Radio production, with readings by Shanna Van Volt, show intro and promo voiced by David Green, music by Laurie Johnson and Bill Bennett from the KPM Archive, for more information on I 94 and for past episodes, visit EYE94.org. For more information on Lumpin' Radio, visit Lumpin'Radio.com.